Morning, this is John Halsman checking in for our special Hamas-Israeli war update. Obviously, our schedule is thrown to the wind. Uh, this is part of my life uh, that I'm sharing with you in the community that obviously we go where the action is. We're a free safety in American football. We follow the ball. And we try to do that within our realist strategic framework, but following the ball is the key. If, if you run a political risk firm, as I said last time, it's current events that you study, the highlight being on the word current. And this bolt from the, view, the blue that came out of nowhere is what we're following. Um, I have a piece out that I recommend to you. I'll put it on LinkedIn in the next day or two, coming out in the great journal, Conservative Home. Paul Goodman, my friends, fantastic uh, journal that I love, that I read myself all the time. Um, and I do foreign affairs for Paul, and I'm writing a piece uh, about what all this means, the Hamas-Israeli war update. And so I wanted to share a version of this with our community uh, today, and we'll try to catch up whenever we can. But as this is a pressing, pressing issue, we thought we'd go into detail here. And one of the things that I really liked in my last book, uh, To Dare More Boldly, was uh, the vignette I told about Harold McMillan and Jack Kennedy. Here is the world-weary survivor of World War I, Harold McMillan, who was wounded in the trenches. Most of his friends at Oxford at Balliol College died, I think, out of his class. There were 31 people and 28 died or something like that. And Macmillan was wounded many times, including badly between the trenches, where being a good English schoolboy, he had a copy of Aeschylus to read to give him comfort. But this is a man who survived his entire world being turned upside down. And he meets and becomes good friends with Jack Kennedy. Uh, Mr. Bright Young Thing, Mr. Modern, Mr. Rationalist, Mr. Cerebral. And they, they share a love of history, kind of an English sense of humor, which I appreciate from my background. And uh, they talk to each other one-on-one -on -one in a friendly way, and we're friendly with each other, about what they found ridiculous in their lives and about what they found deadly serious. And at one point, McMillan asked Kennedy, what do you really fear you know, in life and what you do? Kennedy, being the rationalist that he was, said, the two things that I really worry about are nuclear throw weights, nuclear missiles, and who has more, and the American balance of payments crisis. Kennedy worried about the tangible, things that could be counted, things that could be seen. Macmillan, who had survived World War I and the Suez Crisis, where out of the blue, Britain had lost its empire and position in the world. When Kennedy asked him, what do you worry about, Harold? He said, famously, or he may have said, I like to think he did. There's some question historically as to whether he actually said this. But he said to Kennedy, events, dear boy, events. Kennedy worried about what he could see. Macmillan worried about what he couldn't see. The bolt from the blue that would be thrown at him that he would have to deal with that no one had thought coming. And I thought about this story after the Hamas attack on Israel, which was unprecedented in scope. So first, what's gone on? What do we know? How do we see through this fog of war? Well, there are some things that we know. First of all, we know that about a thousand Hamas militants crossed the southern Israeli border in a remarkably coordinated attack by air, sea, and land, and that a thousand of these guys penetrated Israel proper in the south from Gaza, the Gaza Strip, where Hamas is in charge. And this is the first time anyone's penetrated Israeli 
Israel proper since the Yom Kippur War of 1973. So, you know, this was unprecedented. And they hauled back somewhere between 130 and 150 Israeli hostages after scenes of absolute carnage and animal-like brutality, which I'm not going to go into. But think the worst and you'll be right. There were massacres, gang rapes, you name it, Hamas did it and pulled these people back into Gaza. Now, obviously, this is a monumental intelligence favor from, from the famed Israeli intelligence services of Mossad, which handles external Israeli intelligence, and Shin Bet, which handles internal Israeli intelligence. And how could they be caught so off guard? I mean, that, that's an immediate question. And part of the reason is that they believed uh, what Hamas was selling, that it was past its sell-by date, that it could annoy Israel, shoot the odd missile into southern Israel, but it was no longer really a force to be reckoned with. And Hamas did a good job of selling to the Israeli security services that what they really cared about now was getting work permits um, and jobs in Israel proper for the people of Gaza. So they sold the fact that rather than being a radical group with millennial goals, that, that somehow uh, Hamas at base was just like Israel, that its aims were um, immediate, um, economic, and rational. Um, when in reality, Hamas's aims were longer-term, military, and symbolic. In essence, Mossad and Shin Bet forgot that Hamas was a radical terrorist group with millennial goals and instead treated them just like them. And so Hamas sold this argument very well indeed, um, and Israel didn't see this coming. And then the other problem for Israel is that this is a country that's politically been preoccupied. Since Bibi Netanyahu came back to power with his far-right government, uh, he's attempted a series of judicial changes. I don't really think the word reform is correct, but judicial changes that will water down the power of Israel's judiciary. And this is largely because the far right hate Israel's judiciary and Netanyahu sees them as a mortal threat as there are three corruption cases staring him in the face that could well land him in jail. Far better to water down the judiciary. But this has really divided Israeli society there have been almost daily protests in the tens of thousands um, as this has preoccupied society. For instance, many of Israel's reservists have, in essence, been on strike over Netanyahu's decision to do this. And so Israel was preoccupied and had lulled itself into sleep that Hamas's goals were now rational rather than millennial. And obviously there's going to be at the end, there's unity at the moment, but there will be a reckoning for all this as there always is in Israeli government. And Israeli political culture is quite specific in its tradition, that if you are involved in a military failure of significance, you have to resign as prime minister within about two years. This was the case for Golda Meir after the Yom Kippur War of 1973, where she and the famed defense minister Moshe Dayan, who the, the hero of the 1967 war, were forced from office. This happened to Menachem Begum after the first Lebanon war and happened to Ehud Olmert after the second Lebanon war. That Bibi Netanyahu, for all that he has certainly been the Harry Houdini of, of Israeli politics, coming back from the dead more times than I can count, my friend Jim Zanotti and I often talk about the amazing resilience um, of, uh, of Netanyahu, but I think it's reached its limit here because he's running smack dab into the one thing every Israeli citizen demands 
of its prime minister's eternal military vigilance. And if you fail in this, after a decent interval of time, you're out. And I think that Netanyahu's days are now numbered because of what's happened. And that's really the first major uh, point here. This is how the what happened leads directly to Netanyahu, much as he might want to blame the security um, and military folks. And sure, some of their heads may roll too, but along with Netanyahu's. And so that's first. I mean, the second takeaway, I would argue, is that in a way, despite the blowback, the thunderous Old Testament style blowback to come um, in Gaza, where I think there's no doubt that Israel is going to invade, reports have it that Netanyahu spoke with Joe Biden and said, look, there's nothing I can do. I have to go into Gaza itself and invade and try to root out Hamas. And the president made no effort to dissuade him. Uh, 300,000 reservists, the largest number in Israel's history, have been called up to the border. So it looks like an invasion of Gaza is imminent. But ironically, in a way, Hamas has already achieved most of its goals, both domestically and internationally. And what do I mean by this? Well, first, domestically, Hamas has put itself back on the map. The, the, the story was that, again, it was past its sell-by date, was weakened to the point that it was a nuisance, but that was it. It was no longer a potent threat to Israel. And, of course, this strikes at the, the founding ideology of Hamas. This is an organization founded on armed political resistance to Israel. If you can't deliver the goods there, then you're not likely to be politically popular. And now Hamas has shown at a stroke that it is still militarily a force to be reckoned with, that it's that it's surprised both Israel and the world and what it's done, that armed resistance still has utility in the Palestinian cause, and that Israel and the United States are not all powerful. All this plays domestically in a Palestinian sense to Hamas's strengths. When you then add in the context that the Palestinians are at a critical juncture, that Fatah, long the dominant force in Palestinian politics since the days of Yasser Arafat, is past its sell-by date with the deeply corrupt and uninspiring leadership of Abu Mazen, who's seeing the way the wind is blowing and knows that if he has elections in the West Bank and Gaza, he may well lose them. He's just decided not to have them. But Abu Mazen, corrupt, inept, sclerotic as he is, is soon to leave this planet for his reward. And in doing so, there will have to be a transition. Hamas has laid claim now to being the heir to this, to, to both the West Bank and Gaza and to take over and dominate Fatah in that he's actually, quote unquote, done something for Palestinian militants in both Gaza and the West Bank. So the declining Fatah movement is soon to be in transition. Uh, what happened with Hamas certainly plays into this and puts down a marker for their goal and to be the overall leader of the Palestinian people itself. And so that's kind of the domestic take. And internationally, even more so, Hamas and its paymaster, Iran, have benefited by what's happened already. That there was a looming, and we talked about this in an earlier substack, there was a looming deal. I was against it because I think it's in the bad interest of the United States, but certainly it was a deal fear, feared by both Hamas and Iran that Israel, the United States, and Saudi Arabia would reach a deal whereby Saudi Arabia would recognize uh, Israel diplomatically, Israel would allow finance to flow into Saudi Arabia to finance Mohammed bin Salman's very ambitious modernization efforts in Saudi Arabia. 
and Saudi would receive defense guarantees from the United States, probably along the lines of those done for, for Bahrain, which joined the Abraham Accords before. And that this deal was, of course, a stake driven right at the heart of Iran and Hamas. For Hamas, the problem was that this yet again sidelines the Palestinian cause, that up until now, the Saudis and other Arab countries haven't recognized Israel, citing the Palestinian issue as the reason. Now they're prepared to do so anyway. And so the Palestinian cause would have slipped ever further down the list of priorities in the region. And Hamas certainly didn't want that. Now for Iran, the deal is more of a straightforward threat um, that its two greatest enemies were going to find common cause and that that should be averted in any way possible. This is just good realist stuff. You don't let your two enemies unite if you can help it. Now, of course, the Arab street will watch Israel go into Gaza. Any retaliation in Gaza will be seen as an overreaction by the Arab street. Uh, but this will make it almost impossible domestically for MBS to move forward in the short term. So for the short to medium term, Hamas's attack has seen off this potential very negative alliance of the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Israel from formally allying against Iran and Hamas. And this works to everyone's benefit. There's an open question to how involved Iran was in this. Was this just a grant? I mean, Iran is certainly Hamas's paymaster. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and this could be a grant where Hamas went to Iran, to the Revolutionary Guards uh, specifically, and said, look, here's our proposal to mess around with Israel. Can you give us organization and finance to deal with this? Or was this an, Israel or was this an Iranian project that Hamas carried out. Frankly, although the Wall Street Journal says they have evidence that this was an Iran deal, I'm skeptical about that because Hamas in the past has kept its distance from Iran in a way that, say, Hezbollah in the north in Lebanon has not. For one difference, Hezbollah in the north, another militant terrorist group, uh, Hezbollah is Shia, as is Iran. They are much closer together in terms of religion and ideology. Uh, Hamas is, is Sunni, comes from the Muslim Brotherhood uh, background, which is not Iran's cup of tea. And in fact, the two found themselves on opposite sides of the Syrian civil war. So although they're allies over Israel, they're somewhat farther afield, less tied in uh, to Iran than is Hezbollah. It doesn't mean Iran didn't do this. The Wall Street Journal thinks that it did. I'm more skeptical. I want to wait for the dust to settle before I decide who did what. Certainly Iran paid for it, was the grant organizer, and provided organization and material for Hamas to do this. But whether they were actively running it or merely kind of passively supporting it, that's a key and open question that those of us who follow this are going to really have to keep our eyes on. That, frankly, might merit a substack on its own. But what we do know, again, is that in terms of domestic politics, and strategically, internationally, Hamas has already achieved its objectives. It's stopped this peace deal. It's bigged itself up with the Palestinians. Um, and it's done so even before the Israelis uh, begin their counterstrike, which one will undoubtedly be thunderous. Uh, but again, being in armed resistance is what Hamas is about. They don't really care about running Gaza. They've run it terribly, ineptly because they care more about the cause than actually the people themselves. I think that's a fair criticism. And uh, on that level, they've been successful domestically in terms of politics and strategically. And that's the next take takeaway. And the last takeaway is how clueless the Biden people have looked. I mean, they're talking points galore 
uh, for both, frankly, neoconservatives and realists in the Republican Party over this. Just a few days ago, Jake Sullivan, Joe Biden's national security advisor and one of the brighter guys in the, in the Biden government, um, happily said, gormlessly said, the Middle East has been quieter than it's been for years. And he said this in a speech. Obviously, the Biden people had absolutely no idea this was coming. That's the nicest and kindest way to put it, that, this, that they were as clueless as the Israeli intelligence people. They didn't see this coming at all. Worse, Biden just gave $6 billion back to Iran uh, in return for some American hostages. Uh, obviously, money is fungible, and whether the money directly goes to Hamas or not, Iran suddenly has $6 billion more to play with, and that ups the account. That means they can afford to do things like finance terrorist acts throughout the Middle East because they simply have $6 billion more. It's silly to talk about whether this is earmarked directly for terrorists or not. It doesn't matter. Money is money. And if you put it in the pot, Iran has more money to spend funding groups like Hezbollah and Hamas, whose interests are inimical to that of the United States. And so Biden missed the boat on the $6 billion. He missed the boat on seeing this coming. And lastly, and I think a key point to make, is here is finally the link with Ukraine. They're talking, you know, neocons and cheerleaders for Ukraine are talking about what's going on as though there's this James Bond-like simple fairy tale that Spectre sits down and Spectre you can see in the room from an early Bond, say, from Thunderball, I think it was, where they all sit in the room together. And number three, how are narcotics going? Is Although these groups are, are coordinated and unified, meaning China and Russia and Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah, North Korea probably, are all sitting in a room saying, how can we coordinate to mess with things? They have common interests, but that doesn't mean they always agree. And that certainly doesn't mean they act in, in unified fashion, because uh, they don't at all. And to think of it that way is simplistic and worse, misleading people. And, you know, when I read people like Andrew Mictus saying, ah, oh, this is somehow a Russian plot to, to draw away reality, this is just fantasy land to push the Ukraine thing to a ridiculous and a dangerously naive way. Rather, the link is this. Harold McMillan is right. What you should worry about in political risk and in life is events coming from out of the blue. Events, dear boy, events are what to be afraid of. And things will always come at a country, and it's best to have a reserve of economics, of men, of material, of strategic munitions, to be able to deal with things as they come at you. But you have to realize that this number of munitions, the United States, for all that it's the greatest power in the world, there are limits to what it can do. For all that there are limits, that means you have to live in the grown-up world, unlike Andrew Micta, of actually making choices. You don't say, oh, we can easily do everything when it's simply not the case. American munitions, because of Ukraine, have been drawn down to a scandalously low percentage. And in the long run, we're going to need, or we might need, these munitions for the Indo-Pacific, a region of infinitely greater importance to the United States than is Ukraine, which is at best a third-order priority. Now we have, out of the blue, one of our special relationships in the world. And the United States doesn't have many alliances that are truly special relationships. What, Israel, the UK, the other Anglosphere countries, Japan, that's probably it. Maybe parts of Europe, maybe not. That's probably it. That's it. And when these countries are desperately in need of munitions or are under attack, 
it's best that for, as a bolt from the view, blue, the United States has in reserve munitions to help its primary allies who constitute its primary national interests. Well, we can't do that necessarily now because we've frittered away our munitions on a third order priority. Here, finally, with Harold McMillan, is the link. Events, dear boy, events tie into the finite nature of American wherewithal, forcing you to make choices. It's past time, high past time, that the Biden administration actually allocate resources based on America's genuine national interests, calling for restraint because America has limits, which means you simply can't say anymore, do everything. We have to be smarter living in Harold McMillan's world. And that's my Hamas-Israeli war update. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will keep them coming as things warrant. And one of these days we'll get back to a nor normal schedule. But welcome to my world. This is what happens when you think you're going to have a few quiet weeks off. Events, dear boy. Events. Thanks very much. Please do subscribe. And on to the next.